Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Christine Wells' World War II historic fiction celebrates strong, courageous women with storylines that faithfully reflect the true lives of the real spies and resistance workers who risked everything through those years. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in today's episode Christine talks about the remarkable boom there is in wartime fiction, why women readers in particular seem to like wartime stories so much and she'll share her fascination with the heroic women who were sent behind enemy lines. But before we get to Christine, just a reminder, the links to her books and website can be found in the show notes for this episode on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find details too of how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Christine. Hello there, Christine, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Thanks so much for having me. Look, um, we're living in extraordinary times of pandemic. You're in Australia and I'm in New Zealand, and we're both in some degree of social social isolation. So give listeners a picture, perhaps, of where you are and how social distancing is affecting you. Well, I'm in Brisbane and as a writer who is a bit of an introvert, I have to say that I probably am coping with social distancing a lot better than most people. Uh, Not a lot has changed from the perspective of work, but uh, I do have two children and they're both at home uh, doing their schoolwork via the internet, but uh, I don't call it homeschooling because they're both in high school and, and very capable of organising themselves. So uh, I'd say that I am missing my friends. I really would love, I mean, I think everybody's just going to have a big party when all of this is over. But, uh, you know, it's something we all have to do and uh, I'm happy to to abide by the, the rules and I don't think they're, they're as strict as they are in some other places. We can still go out and get coffee or as long as it's takeaway and keep social distancing and so forth. So um, I'm just looking forward to seeing my family again and my friends, yeah. Yes, Australia's doing pretty well with their bubble. And I've heard somebody suggesting, actually today is Anzac Day, the, the day that our two countries celebrate or or honour, should be the better word, um, war heroes and I've heard somebody suggest that we should start an Anzac bubble that the first thing we should do is try and get the borders between Australia and New Zealand open again so that we could each visit each other and I thought that sounded like a great idea to create an Anzac bubble. Oh I think that's an amazing idea because uh, I can see that foreign travel is not going to occur for us for quite some time. That if New Zealand, uh, New Zealand has been quite successful with their uh, isolation as well. So wouldn't that be wonderful? And it, it would, would stimulate the, the economy as well. It, that's exactly it, because we're all so concerned about 
letting our tourist industry flourish again, I'd certainly be very happy to come to Australia and, and I think Australians would be happy to come here. So maybe that is something for the future. Yes, uh, what, what a happy thought. <laughs> Look, you, were a tra- you are a trained lawyer and you were working as a lawyer before you turned to your fiction career. I just wondered how that transition happened. Was there a once upon a time moment when you just felt you had to write fiction? I don't know that it was a once upon a time moment. I always loved writing fiction throughout high school, uh, but I let it go by the wayside when I did my law degree because I knew that I would be most likely to spend more time on writing than on my law books. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I did start again a few years into my work life uh, and I just became addicted. It was uh, uh, every spare moment I had, I was writing. So when people say to me, oh, I've got a very demanding job, I'm too tired to write when I get home, I I don't believe it because I've been there. And um, I think if you've got the, the chops to write novels, then you really need to be able to do it under any kind of circumstances. Yes, look, just out of curiosity, how many years were you working full-time and writing at night? How long did that go on for? I think it would have been about two years, I'd Mm -hmm. say. And then I think my husband, who was very patient but quite tired of uh, never seeing me, suggested that maybe this was a career and I could give up law and write full-time. And uh, it took me a long time to decide to do it because... Obviously, the income is nowhere near uh, commensurate, but uh, it just seemed like a good time. We were planning a family, uh, writing this very flexible career, and I couldn't see myself being a corporate lawyer and giving that the full amount of time it required and also being a mother. Uh, yes. I know I know women do it. I don't know how they do it, but yeah. uh, it it because I was so wrapped up in the writing it just seemed like a good idea to uh to make the switch and the funny thing the funny thing is about that that uh once I announced to my law firm that I was leaving to pursue a writing career all of these would be uh playwrights and directors of film and uh, other writers came out of the woodwork (laughs) (laughs) and uh it's amazing how creative people are in their spare time. That's right. There's quite a few people that I've spoken to who trained as lawyers and are now uh, fiction writers. So, yeah. Look, you started in romance, but you've recently switched to historical fiction, most recently to World War II mysteries, The Juliet Code and The Traitor's Girl. And I wondered what attracted you to the historical genre? Well, I've always loved historical fiction. primarily historical fiction set in Europe uh, and Britain particularly. So I couldn't sell that kind of book in Australia when I started out. This was uh, late 90s. So at that stage they wanted Australian history but not convicts. So there wasn't really a lot of 
scope there. And uh, so I looked overseas to see what I could do, what I could, how I could fit my voice into what was being marketed over there. And I found historical romance, which was Regency set historical romance. And I'd grown up on a diet of Georgette Heyer. So uh, I decided, well, that's what I'm going to try. And I just, I really loved writing them. They were great fun. And I did 10 of those for New York publishers, Penguin and Pan Macmillan. Uh, But then Kate Morton came on the scene during that time and was made such a success of writing European-based historicals. I mean, I think most of hers are Britain. And so this was the kind of thing I'd always wanted to write. And my editor at Penguin Australia, who had bought the rights to my historical romance, suggested that I do something for them along these lines. Uh, And that became The Wife's Tale, which is partly set in 18th century England and partly set in present-day Australia. And then I moved on to World War II because I just love spies and the women who were being sent behind enemy lines into France just really captured my imagination. I, I just love writing about strong, capable women and, you know, this is just a smorgasbord of, of women to, uh, to really dig my teeth into, <laughs> to mix yeah, a metaphor. Yeah. Did you write fiction under another, did you have another author name for your fiction? Uh, yes, uh, historical romance was Christina Brooke. Okay, yes, sorry, yes, your romance is what I meant, yes. Um, I haven't, because uh, I didn't see any of the romance on your current website and I thought you must have done that, yes. Look, your the two spy books that you've, you've published in the last few years, they present fascinating information about the way that spy organisations worked in the 30s, 30s and 40s. The double cross system, for example, which is, covered in The Traitor's Girl, I just wondered about how you did that research and whether it's easy to research that information these days. Well, I think a lot of people are writing non-fiction accounts of these wonderful women uh, who were involved in World War II spying uh, because the National Archives in Britain have started declassifying MI5 files on all these different uh, operations that that were undertaken in, during the war. Uh, and the, the archives themselves have, make fascinating reading. You can actually order those or you can visit the, the Q, um, the archives at Q in, in England. Uh, but the research, it's just... Uh, I really love doing it, so it, it it's not a chore, but it is very involved, and and you you scurry down many avenues trying to find just the right detail and you know piece together the reality of what happens because nonfiction writers don't need to to bring all of that colour and detail that fiction writers need. So we just have that extra layer of of research to do, I think. Yes. The Juliet Code is set partly during the war and partly after and focuses on three women who are sent into Paris as spies. They're parachuted in as wireless operators. 
Can you tell us, without giving away the plot lines in that book, how much of it is fact and how much is fiction? Well, almost all of it is based on fact, Jenny. Uh, the the main character uh, is based on Noor Inayat Khan, who was a wireless operator who was actually scared of gunfire and didn't like to lie, but she was sent to to work behind enemy lines in France and turned out to be extremely brave. Uh, unfortunately, she she died uh, in one of the camps, um, was murdered actually in one of the camps, which does not happen to my fictional heroine. But she was very, her experiences, the training, everything was very heavily based and, and her capture as well was heavily based on Noi Inayat Khan. Uh, all of the, the, the friend Lucy, uh, she was based on Nancy Wake partly. Uh, there was an incident in where they broke into the files in, in the uh, office of the SOE to see what the instructors were saying about them and, and Nancy Wake actually did that. So I, I just thought that was so fun and I, I, I couldn't resist putting it in the book. Uh, and the the antagonist, Strasser, he is uh, very heavily based on a real Nazi commandant called Josef Kiefer, who used to interrogate all of the spies who were captured in France um, in a very luxurious mansion on Avenue Foch, which is just near the Arc de Triomphe. Yes, and one of the things that is hinted at in that book is that possibly there was some betrayal going on right at the beginning so that the Germans may have even known before those women landed that they were coming and that they knew their names and their covers and that kind of thing. Is that is that possibly true? Well, I think it's fairly well accepted that it happened now. Uh, there was an agent called Derricor who, who seems to have betrayed the network in Paris to Josef Kiefer and often the the Nazis were there waiting for the agents when they came parachuting in or, or uh, they would often land a light plane in a field somewhere. So a lot of these agents were picked up as soon as they arrived. Uh, my heroine parachutes she she sort of balks when she has to jump from the plane, so she's blown off course, and that's how she escapes being captured immediately. Uh, but yes, there was a lot of inter-service rivalry between MI6, who considered themselves to be the professionals at this game, and the special operations executive, who were considered to be cowboys, essentially and probably, you know, set to wreck any any sensitive operation the MI6 were undertaking. So uh, there is a suggestion that MI6 were instrumental in, in the betrayal and that they were working some other scheme in the background. Whether that's true or not, we don't know, and we probably never will because I think the the relevant files might have been eaten by rats, or or there's there's somehow destroyed uh, many years ago. Probably somebody ensured they were. Yes. Yeah. Well, that that's the implication. <laughs> <laughs> 
And the tracking of the Nazi officer responsible for the deaths of many spies after the war ended, that got very complicated too, didn't it? The uh, the, uh, agents continued to try and track down some of these higher officers, Nazi officers, but the, the powers that be became very interested in using the intelligence that they had and weren't so interested in taking notice of the crimes they'd committed. Is that, that, that is referred to in the book, and I gather that is also what happened. Yes, I think that the the powers that be really wanted to draw a line underneath uh, the, the war and, and get on with the next phase. Uh, they were concerned about the Soviet threat and the Germans had a lot of intelligence that that the Allied forces were after. Uh, it was really the SAS who, who were the um, paramilitary elite fighting force who were just determined to hunt these Nazis down because they, they had... Um, a policy of that they called Nacht und Nägel, uh, which is night and fog. Uh, any agents found behind enemy lines by the Nazis were taken. They were they were stripped of their identities and they were executed so that their relatives would never know what happened to them. They'd disappear into the night and fog, and. Uh, as vengeance, I suppose, the SAS were just determined to find all of their men and to bring the perpetrators to justice. So in almost a, an unauthorised operation, they kept going and and one of my characters, Mac, is one of these SAS men who's determined to hunt down this uh, Nazi who, who held, actually held his sister captive. Mm-hmm. Now, The Traitor's Girl begins with a murder trial and um, I thought that as a former lawyer you had a great deal of insight into writing that those scenes with the trial. Did you actually have a transcript of the trial to go on or did you have to make it up? I made it up uh, based on things I'd read and, of course, you know, my father was a barrister uh, I never did trial work, but I, I do get how how it works and how cross-examination works and, and everything like that. So uh, hopefully brought a bit of authenticity to to the scene. Yeah. I was listening to it in an audio book and it was very dramatic. <laughs> Keep me awake. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, this niche of World War II historicals has blossomed hugely. I mean, now there's almost too many of them coming out. But why do you think that there's so much appeal for this period of history now? Well, I think that it's especially popular among women uh, because we can see women coming into their own power and being stepping up, being asked to do things that they were never meant to do and really showing what they were capable of. Uh, and I think that that is a real appeal of the World War II era for me. Uh, I think as well it is an era where you you have the, the black hats and the white hats. It's very clear that the Nazis must be stopped. They, they are a, a worthy adversary 
and uh, a clearly you have the clear-cut lines drawn in that war, whereas with other wars everything's a little bit blurrier. We, we are never quite sure whether we should be involved in some wars or, you know, Vietnam was clearly it's it doesn't lend itself to that same level of certainty as World War Two. And these more recent wars, so many civilians have got caught up in the um, conflict that it's it's slightly uncomfortable. I'm thinking of Syria and Afghanistan and so forth. The, quite a lot of collateral damage with civilians that makes you feel a bit uncomfortable. Oh, absolutely. And and the reality is that, of course, there were civilians involved in in World War II as well. And the re, I think perhaps we view it all with a lot of nostalgia uh, and and especially with the French resistance. I mean, I think it's it it's so hard to imagine what life would have been like under the occupation. And there's a lot of grey area with the French resistance uh, which actually I've written about in a, a new book that's coming out next year called Under the Paris Skies, you know, who, who is a collaborator, um, what sort of pressure are you under as, as somebody who's been occupied for years and can't see an end in sight? You know, do you just try to get on with your life or do you stand up and fight and perhaps you know, be killed for for your beliefs. So it, there's a lot more grey even in World War II than, than we like to think. Uh, but I guess it's far enough in the past that there's a lot of nostalgia around it as well. Yes, yes. Um, one of the other undercurrents in, in the books is a clear indication that how undervalued and almost patronised women were, that although they were being sent into these very dangerous situations, they weren't considered equal to the men in any way, really. They weren't paid the same way. They didn't get the same recognition. And that that comes through very clearly. Yes, I think uh, women turned this to their account uh, with when they were dropped behind enemy lines, it, it was to their advantage that they were uh, not taken seriously. Uh, it's how they managed to slip through a lot of difficult situations by batting their eyelashes and, uh, and just uh, flirting a little with the German officers. But uh, the reality is that a lot of them were instrumental in planning operations. Uh, a lot of women were involved in planning D-Day, for example. There was a very highly regarded spy mistress, they call her now, Vera Atkins, who never even received officer status uh, until after the war, and yet she ran the F section of the Special Operations Executive. So women were doing the work of men but being paid lowly wages. And also, um, it it was mentioned poignantly that if they were, um, if they did die on the job, there was no pension for their dependents back home. They could leave a child that would not know what had happened to their parent, and they wouldn't even get any um, compensation. Well, it's interesting that 
the women were not supposed to be there uh, under the G Geneva Convention. They were not supposed to be used in any way in war, in, in combat or on the front lines or behind enemy lines. So they had no protection under the Geneva Convention either. If they were caught, they would be tortured and executed as spies. Uh, so, yes, that they they were unlike the military men who who would have certain benefits and and their families would know what happened to them. Uh, I think subsequently families were informed about what had actually happened to these women. It was supposed to be a secret, but but it was discovered. I am not sure about. Uh, receiving pensions, I, I imagine not. Is there one thing you've done more than any other that you would credit as being the secret of your success as a writer? I think you have to be persistent as a writer and sometimes the you have bad luck. Uh, the publishing industry is very up and down uh, and you, all you can control is the, the stories you write. So uh, there are times when things don't go so well and you just have to pick yourself up and keep going. I, I actually call it the pit of despair and I know that writers who've been in the business for years and years will invariably go through some trough in their career, whether because the GFC meant that that the sales went down or their book came out on 9-11, which is, I, I know somebody whose book came out on 9-11, well, nobody was going to the bookstores that day. Uh, but the publishers don't remember that later on. So <laughs> they, they just look at sales and say, oh, well, sorry, we can't, we can't buy another book. Uh, so I think persistence is key. You just have to keep going and remember that you're a writer and no one can take that away from you and, and just keep putting all your effort into the stories and not worrying so much about the sales. Yes, that's, that's right. And I imagine that being in this time slot of the Second World War, that the pandemic is probably not going to be affecting any of your plot lines or storylines long term. I mean, I've spoken to romance writers who are having to really think about how they're going to write their next book because they're trying to do contemporary stories. And none of us really know how the world's going to look in another six months or so. There's one New Zealand writer who's just had a book out set in the Whitsundays in a tourist resort where people are flying in and out all the time and she's got no idea whether book two and three, that will be a realistic scenario. Um, but as I say, you probably don't have anything like that that's going to affect you too much long term. No, I don't think so. Not not the subject matter of the stories. I probably wouldn't write a book about the Spanish flu epidemic at this stage, but that was unlikely anyway. Uh, if I were a romance writer, I would just pretend the pandemic never happened and let people escape to the Whitsundays. I think that sounds marvellous right now. Uh, yes. Uh, but, yes, uh, we did think that possibly readers might like to just live in that fantasy world for yes. a while. Yes, I, I don't. I think it's a bit too soon to be uh, setting books in the pandemic era. Uh, yes, yeah. It's but, just that people say, you know, it's affecting our heads so that if you see something on TV where people hug, you've got that feeling now, of, oh, look, look, they're getting too close, that kind of feeling. It, it somehow is messed with our heads. 
It has, and, and it's uh, been a real challenge to continue to be creative and and even reading. I mean, I think reading, everybody said, oh, I'm in lockdown, I'll be able to read a book now. But the reality is that people's attention has been so fractured uh, by news updating all the time and, and circumstances changing with school status and all of these things that uh, it's been very hard to settle down to even read a book. And I, I think everything's settling down a little bit more now, but these these book sales that we thought would would skyrocket, it didn't actually happen. Um, yes. Look, it's, it's good that you've mentioned about reading because we always like to ask, this is the joys of binge reading, so we always like to ask about your reading tastes and whether you like to binge read and if you do, what books you like to read, even if they're not actually binge read books. What are your current favourite reads? Well, I have absolutely binged on a series called Slow Horses by Mick Heron, which is, uh, I describe it as a little bit like John le Carre with more humour and it's about a a group of MI5 rejects, basically, who get sent to a, a, a building in Slough to fester away because they can't be fired for some you know, various reasons, but they want to keep these, these people away from proper operational work. Uh, and, of course, they get involved in operations and, and things ensue. But he, he's such a wonderful writer uh, on top of being a very good storyteller that I just, I, I went through the series like a dose of salts. So that's my binge read. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Look, circling, looking back over where you've come from, we've had a very successful and long career. Is there anything that you would change if you could now, looking back, if you wanted to rewrite history, what is it, if anything, that you'd like to change? Well, I think that it's too difficult to say because I don't, I, I have tried to be smart about my career, but uh, the the industry is just so uncertain and strange that no matter how you try to plan, something else comes along and <laughs> and 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 messes with that. So uh, I don't really know. I think, um, yeah, I think that it's all just happened the way it the, the way it was meant to. Yeah, and it sounds like you've found your niche, and you're just very not just, but you are very much focusing on that niche and not letting yourself be distracted by the next big thing. Yes, well, I find indie publishing extremely alluring and I always keep up with what's going on and I think, oh, my goodness, I'd love to do that and I just really need to concentrate on what's in front of me, which is the next book for uh, William Morrow in, in New York at the moment. But, uh, yes, I, I'm very focused on the historical fiction at the moment. It's, it's really my first love, so uh, I'm very excited to be able to write in that genre. Now, you mentioned that you've got a book coming out under the Paris skies. What are your, when you look ahead, your plans for the rest of this year and, and moving over into the first part of next year now, what's next for Christine, the writer? 
Uh, well, I have revisions from my editor on Under the Paris Skies. That's uh, going to release in summer, the, the American summer of 2021. Uh, and I also have just been given the go-ahead for, for to develop the new book, um, which will be the 2022 book. So um, I'm really excited about that. That's going to be great fun. And that'll be another World War II one, will it? Yes, uh, at the moment it will be. Whether the I still have to write a submission. So uh, first I pitch the idea, and they say, "Yeah, that sounds good." And then I do three chapters and a synopsis. So then that'll be the question. But this one's a World War Two uh, under the Paris skies is French resistance, and it's it involves the Dior's. Catherine Dior was uh, a, a French uh, resistance worker, so she features prominently in this novel too. Fantastic. Now, do you like interacting with your readers? And if so, where can they find you online? I love interacting with readers. Uh, I am mostly to be found on Facebook under Christine Author, Christine Wells Author. And uh, my website is christine-wells.com. We'll put uh, links to all of those um, social media contacts, your website and your books, in the show notes that we publish with each blog post. So people will be able to find you easily just by going to the website. Oh, thanks very much, Jenny. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.